Please stand with me so that we may read from the word this morning. Out of the book of Matthew chapter 11. Come to me, all you that are weary and are carrying heavy burdens, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. The word of God. Please be seated. Melanie and I have been parents now for about 10 years, 9 months, and 8 days. No one's counting. (laughs) And I have to say, it's probably one of my favorite experiences as a human being. It it rises right to the top. I I, I could just, everything in my life and in my world, I could do without. It's all optional. But parenting, man, what an amazing experience for me as a human being. But there is one area, if I had to choose one, where I'm still, it's, it's a growing area. You know how you take those strength assessments and they say, these are your strengths and then these are growth areas? That I, I still have a probably very glaring growth area. My growth area is in the area of putting the kids to sleep. This is a rough one for me. Because it's, it's the work of having to put kids down to sleep. It's the negotiations. Always negotiating. It's like a hostage over, you know, takeover. Negotiating times. Hey, it's time to go to bed. Dad, five more minutes. Two. Seven? No. Okay, five. Fine, five. Wait, no. <laughs> negotiating. It's the surprise. Like, like the, the real, like genuine surprise they get when you say it's time for bed as if they haven't done this for the past ten years. Time for bed. What? 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 Every night it's time for bed at this time. Why are you surprised? It's always one thing after the other, right? Like, I get into bed and then, Dad, you know what comes next. I'm thirsty. You've been up for like 15 hours and now you're thirsty at this moment. Just, I'm so, and then they use words they don't even, I'm parched. How do you, you don't even know what that means. I'm parched. You go get them water, and and then they drink it, and then, Dad, I have to use the restroom. Well, you shouldn't have had the water. Dad, tell me a story. Tell me another story. Dad, uh, uh, how did you and Mom fall in love? Oh, man, that's a tough one. Okay, fine, let me tell this story again. My wife is way better at the bedtime stuff. You know, we have different kinds of parenting styles, and, and, and I, love, uh, I love that my, my wife has like a contrasting kind of parenting style, because, because she's Filipino, so she knows how to get it done. She comes in there, there's no negotiations, we're not going to talk, it's bedtime, go to sleep. And then my kids are like, but I'm going to die. Well, you'll die rested. <laughs> go to sleep. And she'll come out of that room like, 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 you know, if I go in that room, there's, there's no guarantee I'm coming back out till the morning. She goes into the room and she comes out a few minutes later. I'm like, what did you do? She says, I told him to go to sleep. I, I'm working on how to put my kids down. I put them down in the middle of the day, though. Like, you know, in the summertime, I make them go naps. I know they're older, but I still make them go naps. If they start arguing, go take a nap. If they're cranky, right? 
Oh, go take a nap. My answer to everything is go take a nap. Because growing up, in my, my grandmother's house, that's what she did for us. Like, my parents worked a lot, so oftentimes they would send me to my grandparents' house. And my grandmother, who's a staunch Adventist and a proud pastor's wife, was loving but strict. So nap time through the day was a requirement. You could miss a meal, but you never missed nap time. And it was two hours of a nap every day. If I came over there and and my dad was only going to leave me for three hours, guess what we were doing for two hours? Sleeping. If we were cranky or if we were fighting or arguing, nap time. If we yawned, nap time. If we were too excited, nap time. If we woke up, nap time. What? My grandmother believed in nap times. You see, my grandmother, long before the CDC came out with their recommendations, long before Harvard's medicine research weighed in, my grandmother had gathered the collective wisdom of tribal mothers from generation to generation before her and knew an inescapable truth about life. That rest makes us all better people. She didn't know about the neuroceptors being formed or about how the the growth hormones were, were moving about the body during this time. She just knew from her first person experience in a multi generational village where they shared stories and lived life. That if people rested, they together would all be better people. And I think that, I think this, this idea isn't lost on Jesus. I really think that, um, that, that Jesus has something to do with this. That the God of the universe, the God of Genesis, the God of the Gospels, the God of Revelation is, is very intricately involved in what is happening with people who rest. So, Let's jump over to our text. Come to me, all of you that are weary and are carrying heavy burdens, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Now, Many have read this and believe that Jesus is taking a juxtaposition to the Pharisees who tend to put on heavy yokes on people. Now, Jesus would say that his burden is light and his yoke is easy. And today, we would often compare how heavy that yoke was or easy that yoke is compared to the Pharisaic yokes. Pharisees who focus on Sabbath laws and purity law rituals and clean and unclean matters, 613 tenets, uh, 10 commandments, and the strict observance of all these things. You could tell how heavy that yoke would become. And Jesus says, come unto me, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. But if we stop for a moment and think of the book of Matthew, how Matthew was being written to a primarily Jewish community that lived after Jesus' resurrection, then maybe there's room for us to consider something different. Maybe here in the story, if we're thinking about Matthew's community, we start to see a different angle here. We notice Jesus is, in Matthew's writings, constantly being compared to Moses, connected to the lineage of David, 
And many stories in Matthew has a typological connection to the Old Testament. So, so Matthew is doing a good work for his community as he's sharing the gospel of Jesus. And they come along. We stop for a moment to think about this. The book of Matthew is being written here for a people who needs to hear Jesus in a particular way. Thus, maybe Jesus' speech, Matthew is writing, helps the people of Matthew's community to recognize that one, Jesus is the lineage and the Messiah, and two, that it, con it connects with their problems of their world then and there. Thus, maybe Jesus' speech here isn't to contrast the Jewish Pharisees so much, but instead... It's for Matthew's community who's struggling with all that's going on to remember an important value about God and about themselves. And what is this important value that Matthew would like to bestow on Matthew's community? Well, if we're thinking about this text that we read today, it's a part of a prayer. This is the second half of that prayer. And Jesus uses key words in this prayer that would awaken the faithful Jewish person to the long traditions of God's working. When he says this prayer for us, we know it because we say it, but we don't think of it as the way of the traditional community would. But when they hear it, they may hear things that awaken them to something larger, a bigger story that arcs all the way from Genesis to the moment there that they sit together in fear, in fright, and in anxiety. Uh, consider Leviticus chapter 26, verse 13. He says the word yoke, for my yoke is easy. Here, this is a very familiar term for Matthew's community. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt to be their, to be their slaves no more. I have broken the bars of your yoke and made you walk erect. In Lamentations, when Jeremiah is lamenting about what is happening to his people, we see that he writes this, my transgressions were bound into a yoke. By his hand, they were fastened together. They weigh on my neck, sapping my strength. The Lord handed me over to those whom I cannot withstand. You see here, uh, it's a very familiar idea of yokes. And the yoke of God and God's yoke releasing others from these burdens and or fastening them together. So when Jesus says, my yoke is easy, they are, they are familiar with this. It reminds them of bigger stories connected to their ancestry. And then Jesus obviously talks about rest. All who are weary and who are carrying heavy burdens. Come unto me and you will find rest. Rest is another key term. Rest is a very familiar term to the people of the Hebrew Bible. From the mythos of the great Genesis story, where in the beginning God created the universe. Down in chapter 2, there's a culmination of what happens. We see it in the seventh day, God finished the work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all the work that he had done. Now, 
Uh, Walter Brueggemann, who is an Old Testament uh, theologian, would, would suggest that as God is doing the work of creating the world, he dispenses power and, and goodness into it so that on the seventh day, he is able to replenish God's self so that he can be fully God in a created world. And then Walter Brueggemann would say, in a world where we live, where we, where we are constantly uh, diffusing and pushing out, working and making sure that we get to all of our things, a Sabbath is for us where we can stop and replenish who we are in the God of rest. We notice this here in Genesis, in Exodus when Moses gives the Ten Commandments, he says, For in six days that the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that is in them, but rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and consecrated it. He rested. God, again, we see this idea of rest, which is important for people who just were released from slavery and did not know how to slow down. Now notice that this is commandment number four. What commandment is it? Commandment number four, there are six more commandments that come after this fourth commandment. The six commandments are about neighborly care. I don't think it's coincidental that God puts the commandment of rest before the ability to have neighborly care. Maybe it is the God of rest that reminds us we need to stop, slow down, and remember that our value is in him, not in our own works. Not that we can lord that over anyone else, but because I am now just a fellow sojourner in this world that is exhausting and full of anxiety, when I sit next to someone else who is a person that is sojourning through life, I can care and love them as I am cared and loved for by Jesus. So Exodus, the fourth commandment there. After some journeying time, Moses stops Again, it talks to the people. Now it's in Deuteronomy, right? But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. You shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter or your male or female slave or your ox or your donkey or all your livestock or the resident alien in your towns so that your male and female slave may rest as well as you. Oh. Here again, the idea of rest. And now in Deuteronomy, what we see is that rest restores justice, restores equity, restores goodness, restores inclusion and welcome. It restores it in their homes. It restores it in their communities. It restores it to who they employ, to the immigrant, to the migrant. It restores it to the land, to the church, and even to the livestock. Justice and goodness comes from rest. We continue to see it in the Old Testament. The psalmist would pen, unless the Lord builds a house, those who build it in labor in vain. Unless the Lord guards the city, the guard keeps watch in vain. It is in vain that you rise up early and go to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives sleep to his beloved. Psalmist recognizes that our work and our toil that creates all that anxious tension in us cannot be quelched by more work. Turn to somebody and say, stop working. Yeah, be careful though. 
keep your jobs. But that anxious toil that we get, we try to fix in our world by working some more. And here the psalmist recognizes, ah, where you get the release from your anxious toils is in God because God is the one who gives rest. Gives rest. Finally, one more I just want to share in the book of Exodus chapter 33. Moses had been spending time with God. They've been talking, God been sharing about the plans, and, and finally Moses says, God, I don't want to leave here unless you come with me. Moses knows just how difficult this, this trajectory is going to be. Now, Moses knows that they're in a wilderness. They're, they're a, a fragile people. They don't have weapons. They didn't carry any food. They're, 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 they're migrating through the wilderness where anything in the wilderness could kill them. It could be uh, the weather. It could be, uh, it could be the, the wild animals. It could be the lack of food. There are tons of things in this landscape that could kill them. And Moses recognizes they can't move forward unless God comes with them because God is their protector. God is their guide. God is their sustainer. So he says, God, don't let us go. Please come with us. And here's God's answer to what Moses said. He says, my presence will go with you and I will give you what? Ah, let's say it again. My, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. Why, oh why is this how God responds? God, when I'm in a wilderness situation, when, I, when I'm fragile, when, when I'm exposed and vulnerable, what I need you to be is, is to be the God of, of, of presence and the God of support and the God of, 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 of security. I'd like for, for God to say, my presence will go with you and I will give you protection. And I, and I will give you food. My presence will go with you and I will give you sustainability. No, what does, what does God say to Moses? My presence will go with you and I will give you rest. I will give you rest. It's not my first option on the top of the list for God to give me. But for God, this was important. So we recognize that Matthew's people, as they're listening to this story, they're no longer comparing Jesus to a Pharisee, they're recognizing that, that in this prayer, Jesus is sharing something different with them. And if Jesus isn't comparing, then maybe what he's doing is reminding. And if he's reminding them, then the first portion of this prayer begins to make sense with the second portion of this prayer. If Jesus is reminding them of who God is, of the, the God of Genesis, and the God of Abraham and Isaac and Esau, uh, or, uh, all, the, you know, all the names, that God, if he is indeed that God, then what is that God revealing to us about life? Listen from 25, verse 25. It's a prayer. I thank you, Father, Jesus is praying, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and the intelligent and have revealed them to infants. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. What is Jesus doing? Revealing. 
What is Jesus revealing? God. What about Jesus? What about God is Jesus revealing? The very next portion after he says that, that I choose to reveal to. So, now, so we now know we're, we're all there together in the prayer. And then we say, okay, Jesus, what are you revealing about God to us at this moment? What is it? And here is where we pick up in our, in our passage. Come to me all who are weary and are carrying heavy burdens and I will give you rest. Jesus is revealing the inescapable truth that God is the God of rest and that when we rest in God, we are all better people. This invitation to get rest now falls not only on the ears of Jesus' listeners, but also on Matthew's community who gathered sometime after the actual event. This Methian community is still oppressed by Roman citizenship and Roman occupation. They're struggling through that persecution. They're worried about food scarcity. Their value is based on the production of grain and harvesting for themselves, for the marketplace, and especially for Rome. And so there's a lot of pressure on this group of people to produce. To them, Jesus' voice here spans the whole entirety of the Bible, straight to Matthew's community and from that community to us today. Today, we don't have issues of rest, Pastor. We're fine. We just drink Roma. We're, Pastor, what are you talking, we don't have rest issues. Us? No. I watch my phone till four in the morning for rest. That's how I rest. To us today, Jesus' voice reminds us that we serve not a God of power and exclusion, not even a God of protection, we serve a God of rest. In that, we struggle in our world today with self-worth, with finances, with health, with relationships, with global conflicts that are ever about us. We all want to be successful. We all want to be known for something. We all want to be loved and to love. We all worry about what tomorrow might bring. And so we're always on the move. We're always doing the next thing. We're always trying to create the, the next financial stream. All of us are under this yoke of deception that our power is in our production. But the truth is our power is found in our rest. People today know, you and I, we have this saying, we do it, right? The saying is, I will rest when I die. What a load of untruth. <laughs> I will rest when I die, all the while our weary souls are dying to rest. In the book of Mark, Jesus and his disciples are on a boat, 
And they're going, he says, we're going to go to the other side. They get on the boat. They begin to go to the other side. Storm hits, very familiar story. And the disciples begin to work out their problems. They're working because they're working for their lives. And they notice what? Jesus is not there. Jesus, in fact, is where? Sleeping. And so they rush to Jesus, and they say, Jesus, don't you care that we're about to die? They they were a little bit upset with Christ because they were doing all this work. They were bothered that Jesus was asleep during this storm and while their life is on the line. They're working for their life. God, I'm trying to put my life together, and here you are sleeping. But the questions we ask, I think, should be appropriated to the God of rest. The question for us today shouldn't be, why is Jesus sleeping during the storm? The question should be, why aren't the disciples sleeping next to Jesus during the storm? Why aren't the disciples resting next to the God of rest during this storm? You see, rest forces me to trust God. Rest causes me to release control. Rest relieves me from any power to lord myself or my works over other people. When I am in a rested state, it means I am here vulnerable for the workings that are happening outside of these hands. And so I must trust that the God of the universe who is doing great and mighty things is still doing it for me. I don't have space in my rest position to judge anyone else because I'm in a rest position. I can't lord my abilities over them. I can't say, well, I'm vegetarian. But I'll say it to you anyways, I'm vegetarian. I can't say that I keep the Sabbath correctly. I can't can't say that I, I am more valuable and more worthy to be in this church because of what I am done. Why? Because I am rested upon the work of God. When we rest on the work of God, we become more gracious, more welcoming, more good. Just watch your children. When they're going crazy, make them nap. They get up and it's as if the whole thing was scraped clean. Right? They're like, ah, welcome world. And you're still, because you didn't take a nap, reeling from all of that. When we rest in God and we pause, we allow God to be God and we get to be sojourners on this journey. Praise God for an amazing church. Church, I want to tell you, I am so proud of our community. I am thankful for our community, for the good work that we do. I I look around and I see a gracious people. And I wonder how much more gracious even still could we be if we learned to rest more in God. Hmm. To rest means to be still. And to discover who I am meant to be in Christ. The psalmist says, be still and know that I am. One more time. Be still and know that I am. 
God. That's what the psalmist says. The psalmist is a working being, but, but as they pen this, they recognize that we must be still in order to recognize God is God. Be still and know that I am God. Don't, not, he didn't write, not run and know that I am God. Not work harder and know that I am God. Not multitask all of my responsibilities and know that I am God. Not even work a little bit and know that I am God. The text says, be still and know that I am God. Be still and know that I am God. Be still and know that I am God. I'm exalted in all the nations. I'm exalted in all the earth. And maybe we have a difficult time being still because we would like just a little bit of that exaltation for ourselves. What are you running from? Why do you keep running at your pace? What are you running to after this? Or what did you run from to this? Where are you running off tomorrow? Our running is nothing new. This text speaks to the people that Jesus preaches to, to Matthew's community in his time, and it speaks to us today. History of our world is full of people constantly running to and from, trying just to finish one more thing, just one more job, just one more income stream, just one more degree, just one more event to solidify my legacy, just, just one more relationship to make me feel more human and more loved. Just, just, just. What we need to do today is we need rest. Now I realize this sermon was really just for me. I'm a hypocrite. As Paul would say, I am the chief of sinners. I asked my wife last week, I said, how do I look? She's like, oh, you look tired. And I was like, really? Because I thought I was looking pretty good. You know, I washed my face, I cleared it off, and I was like, I tried to present myself real well. And she said, yeah, you look tired. And I said, I look tired? I feel great. She's like, nope, nope, your face tells me different. And I said, uh, well, is this how I, you know, is, how can I change that? She's like, actually, it's your normal look these days. Oh, solid burn, wife. The truth always scolds just a little. And I think about why, Icky, are you constantly running? Just one more project. Just one more study. Just one more degree. Just one more class I can help with. Just, just this and just that. And in the midst of all that I'm doing for God, I have forgotten to sit with God. So, this sermon was for me, a reminder. Icky, you are valuable just the way you are. Whether you make another amazing feat at something or whether you never do something that progresses anywhere again. Whether you write another fantastic sermon or the rest of your sermons are not, 
whether the church blossoms and falls in love with Jesus because of you and your pastoral team and their leadership and, and we can't get enough space or whether everyone leaves, you are still valuable to God. To rest in the truth that there is not one more project that will make you any better. To rest in the truth that there is not one more income stream that will make you more satisfied. My wife and I, when we first uh, got married, I was living in a 680 square foot little uh, condo in Long Beach, 17th story. And we loved that space. We lived there for many years. Then we had our first daughter, our, well, our, our only daughter, our first child. <laughs> only one daughter, honey, I promise. We had a daughter and we lived there with our daughter and then we had our son and there was four of us in 680 square feet. And our house started looking like a, looking like a, a place where, where, you know, you, you just storage. It was like a storage unit. You'd come in and you'd come in sideways and then you'd, you'd have to move stuff around to sit on things. And, and my wife says, you know what we need? I said, what do we need? She says, we just need a home. She said, if you gave me more room, there'd be less stuff. And I was like, are you sure? She's like, yeah. I said, all right. Worked my butt off. We found a place that was near to the school. When the kids started going to school, we moved in there. Three bedrooms. Hallelujah. It was like the promised land. We came into the house, and you could see for just a few feet, because it wasn't that big, but three bedrooms. Within a year, it was packed in there. What? What happened? We looked at each other. What did we do? And, and, we, and we said, you know what we need? We just need to move to some other place with an extra bathroom. That's what will do it. We'll be happy there. And we moved to Riverside, got open the door, and there we are in this beautiful home with a backyard and space and three bedrooms and a, two bathrooms and a beautiful kitchen. And we said, we finally made it. Our home is going to be gorgeous. Two weeks later, stuff. Walking into our house, he says, why? We always thought that once we get just a little bit further down the road, we'd be happy and satisfied. Just one more job. Just one more stream of income. Just one more thing. And God says, none of those things will ever fulfill you what will be fulfilling is if you find rest in Jesus. So, here's two things we can do this week while you're following along the Lyft project. Dr. Morton challenges us to, this week to take a few minutes each day to be quiet and mindful. Just stop. Try this. Let's, I'm going to challenge all of you. Try this. For the rest of this week, starting tomorrow... Until we meet again next week when Dr. Morton will be preaching in here in person. I want you to take 10 minutes during your day, preferably in the morning before everything gets started, and pause. Just pause for 10 minutes. Clear your mind and sit in the silence with God. Try it. See how it happens. I've been doing it for a week already. This first week was a complete failure. I'd be like, all right, here we go. 10 minutes. Hold on a second, Lord. Two hours later. Oh, come on. Why am I doing that? You know, and get in this space. I'm going I, by to, the, by the end of the week, I started cruising along a little bit smoother because I'd gotten into the rhythm. When something uh, attempted my mind or jumped in there, I'd say, hey, get out. I'm staying in this space. 
I'm going to be mindful. I'm going to be quiet. Here's the second thing um, for, for us to all do. And this can start today. You can do this from the moment you leave, whether you're a part of our congregation or if you're visiting. This is what you can do. You can start to live out a Sabbath. Breathe deeper today. Walk a little slower. Laugh a little louder. And tarry a little longer. Be a little more generous. And welcome a lot more in. For as we discover rest in God, we may find the inescapable truth about life. That rest makes all of us better people. Be well.